This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. It's nice to see so many people. And I know we have a number of people in the one window, the one Zoom window of the Austin Zen Center. It's also wonderful to see people in the Zendo. I, uh, I was asked to, well, I volunteered to give a Dharma talk during the practice period. And um, it was suggested that I give a talk as I guess is somewhat traditional on Dharma transmission since I just underwent this uh, process. And uh, I kind of feel inadequate to say anything about it, but here I am, so I'll say some things. <laughs> uh, and uh, if you have questions, I hope you'll ask them. So as many of you know, I received Dharma transmission from the Abbot of Houston Zen Center, uh, Konjin Galen Godwin, earlier this month. And often someone who's gone through this process, you know, um, tries to say something about what has happened and what we mean when we say things like, oh, she's been transmitted or she, re she received shiho, which is a term, another term for transmission that, that we don't use so much in our lineage is my impression, but I have heard it uh, said by people in our lineage. And we say things like, she's now a transmitted teacher. Uh, most obviously, she wears a brown okesa, right? So I have new threads <laughs> and rakasu. And sometimes, you know, we carry a stick or a fancy fly whisk or a fan, right? All these things are outward signs that something's different. <clears throat> so I wanna kind of start out though, this talk, trying to summarize what uh, leads to this, whatever it is, because um, I have some indication sometimes from in our Sangha at least and, and in other places I've been that the whole kind of hierarchy of ordination, what looks like steps and progress, um, and the authority to teach is kind of mysterious to many people. Um, so the first thing I wanna do is talk about that a little bit. And there are actually many variations on what I am about to describe, and I will describe the process that I particularly underwent as best I can and as much as I can. Um, and different lineages of Zen and Soto Zen have different practices around this, but there are some common aspects. In our tradition, uh, passed to us through the San Francisco Zen Center, um, we actually have two kinds of ordination, what we call ordination, or tokudo. We hear that uh, Japanese word used. We have jukai, or lay ordination, and a number of you have experienced this. Um, this is where uh, someone, a lay person, asks a teacher about receiving the bodhisattva precepts. You know, they, they feel called to take the precepts, ask for the precepts, receive the precepts because they want to orient themselves around the precepts as the center of their life. And part of this taking of these vows is to sew a small version of Buddha's robe, uh, a small, the rakasu, is just a small version of the larger robe, the over-the-shoulder robe that priests wear, but it's still Buddha's robe. 
and it's made of blue cloth for lay people. And then you undergo this ceremony, which is called uh, Zaike Tokudo, staying home and accomplishing the way is the way it's usually translated. And in this ceremony, which even if you haven't uh, taken the precepts yourselves, you may have witnessed this ceremony with friends, Sangha members, family, you uh, are witnessed and supported in your vows to practice for the benefit of all beings, the Bodhisattva vows. And it's the group of people witnessing this is Sangha, friends and family as, as possible. And vow is at the heart of all ordinations, right? Um, one vows to make the precepts the center of one's life. One receives new clothing. In this case, if you're a layperson, the Raksu, and you get a new name, your Dharma name, and you become a, a child of the Buddha. You become part of this family, a Buddha's family. And um, you will receive also a written paper document called a Ketchimyaku, uh, the bloodline lineage, a kind of family tree that includes you in the succession of Buddha ancestors through your teacher. And your teacher can do this ceremony and pass on the lineage to you because she was authorized and empowered to do so with Dharma transmission. <laughs> um, now in Japan, um, well, actually I'll, I'll save that for later. I'll talk about the other tarp type of ordination, which is what we call priest ordination. Um, shuke tokudo in Japanese, which means leaving home and accomplishing the way or leaving home and crossing over. And this ceremony, some of you may have been to a priest ordination somewhere. Um, it bears a lot of similarity actually to lay ordination. And usually you do lay ordination before you become a priest, before you uh, undergo priest ordination. Um, that may happen or may not happen. Uh, the, the Bodhisattva path is the Bodhisattva path but it again entails taking the precepts. And in fact, after uh, hanging around Zen temples for a while, it seemed to me that all we know how to do in our, in our big ceremonies is take the precepts, all of the life um, uh, uh, kind of uh, transitional ceremonies, weddings, funerals, <laughs> um, can include uh, receiving the precepts. And at, at this point in my life, I have taken them four different times and I may not be done yet. So the 16 Bodhisattva precepts are taken in these cases, but the vows of a priest are more uh, than just the 16 Bodhisattva precepts. And priests receive more than the Kechamyaku and Arakasu to symbolize those vows and to make them visible and to remind them of their vows. Um, and it's hard to say exactly what divides, what the dividing line is between a priest and a layperson in our way of practice. This is the great koan, I think, that Suzuki Roshi left us. We do monastic practice as lay people, but we still maintain that there are, there are priests and there are lay people. That's a whole nother <laughs> topic, but not unrelated. A priest has responsibility for putting practice foremost, for serving others, for sitting zazen and encouraging and making it possible for others to sit. 
And, you know, of course, a committed layperson may also do those things, but a priest makes what is intended to be a lifetime commitment. That's the intention. Doesn't always work out that way, but I think that's the intention. And we usually say that a priest carries the tradition, right? Actually wears the tradition and is expected to show up in the form of a priest to wear the okesa, to comport uh, themselves in certain ways and take up ceremonial roles as needed. And again, this varies quite a bit from place to place and person to person. There are many ways actually of manifesting a priest's vows, but that's one way, or at least what we are given, we're given the instruments to do this. Then at some point in one's training, either as a priest or a layperson, you might be invited to be shuso or head student or head monk. Uh, those are different ways of referring to it. <clears throat> or head seat is actually the, the literal translation, I think, um, for a practice period at a temple. So watch out. <laughs> it could happen to you. Um, this opportunity can be offered to a lay person who has a mature practice, and it's part of the development of priest practice. Practice periods, and we are in one now, um, are traditionally three months in length, but they may be a month or six weeks or two months. There are many variations on the length and structure of a practice period, but it is a period of intensified practice. And it may be an opportunity for someone in the Sangha who's been training to step forward, invited by their teacher. A Shuso starts teaching formally by giving Dharma talks, meeting one-on-one -on -one with other practitioners, assisting the teacher, training in ceremony, and being a model of practice and commitment. And after the Shuso practice period, a former Shuso can continue and usually does continue to offer talks and meet with people and can even have a group of their own, you know, kind of go off independently and have a sitting group, but cannot offer ordination, cannot offer the precepts. And that is true whether you're a priest or a layperson. Now, after being Shuso, sometimes after many years, a priest may eventually be offered Dharma transmission. And there is traditionally, at least, a lot of reticence around Dharma transmission. It's kind of mysterious. It's kind of esoteric. Some aspects of it are often said to be secret, um, but maybe a better word is private, you know, between the disciple and the teacher. Uh, the two ceremonies that conclude Dharma transmission are not public the way many or almost, I think all of our other ceremonies are, right? like Jukai or weddings. Um, they, there's no, there's no, uh, Sangha witness, except maybe a couple of people who it's, who assist. And, uh, for me, Mako, um, was kind enough to come to Houston and was the main instructor who assisted in my case. And I'm very uh, grateful to her for doing that. And in terms of the question, what happened? Well, these concluding ceremonies empower the person receiving transmission to give the precepts and to ordain others, either as lay people in the ceremony of Jukai or as priests. And they can also offer transmission to others. Um, <clears throat> so it is a, um, it's a big responsibility that you're entrusted with. And I, I want to 
um, come back to that concept of trust and entrustment a little bit later. Now, there's also a kind of transmission called uh, sometimes Dharma entrustment in our uh, tradition for a committed layperson who has been Shusou and has developed into uh, in the direction of a teacher. And often such individuals do have their own sitting groups and have been giving talks and guiding people in their practice and Dharma entrustment is offered. And this takes a different form from the Dharma transmission that I, I just mentioned and that I received. Um, for one thing, it is public, at least the, I have witnessed such ceremonies with the Sangha witnessing this empowerment and recognition. Um, a lay person who is Dharma entrusted sometimes will be wearing a green rakasu, which signifies their status as a Dharma teacher recognized in this way. The primary difference, aside from what people may be wearing or, or carrying, is that a lay person can teach but cannot offer the precepts. You know, even if Dharma entrusted, they cannot ordain others, right? Um, this is a point under discussion currently in American Zen, at least, you know, whether you must be ordained as a priest to offer the precepts. And so far in our lineage, the answer seems to be, you do have to be a priest in order to transmit the precepts to others. So that's kind of the basic system we are operating under with variations and exceptions, as I said. So I want to say a little more about the ceremonial aspects in part because people are always curious. <laughs> um, and um, because we tend to focus on the culminating ceremonies, the ones I just mentioned, um, there's actually a long process leading up to them that I wanted to say something about. Not just your training as a priest or as a, a, a lay person leading to Dharma entrustment, but you know, not just that, those years of sitting and practicing and clarifying your understanding with your teacher or teachers, um, the formal practice, that the formal process, excuse me, that leads to the ceremonies, the ceremonial part actually begins, or at least it began for me, when um, after offering me this opportunity, um, I started studying a, a series of essays that were um, specified by Konjin Galen, Roshi, um, essays written by our Japanese founder, Dogen. Anybody can read them. These are not any kind of private or secret things, but all of them are about essentially teachers and students, the intimacy of teachers and students, and about the transmission, the, the somewhat indescribable exchange that takes place in encountering others and encountering ourselves through these encounters. And you can also read about such pivotal encounters in the koan literature, which um, sometimes we study or sometimes, you know, someone tells a story out of the koan tradition and I will do so in a little bit. So none of this is actually in any way opaque <laughs> or unavailable to everyone. So I was invited to start this process last year by Abbot Konjin. Um, and uh, she also invited me to start sewing, right? So we, that's another thing that we talk about. Oh, so-and-so is sewing, which is shorthand for sewing a rakasu, sewing an okesa, right? They're taking steps towards some form of ordination. So I started sewing 
uh, a rakasu first, a brown rakasu, and then this brown okasa, which I'm now wearing. And I, and I did this because my teacher is not in, in Austin by going to Houston. Um, all these trips to Houston when I wasn't with you on Saturdays is because that's what I was up to. Uh, getting instructions on the next steps, cutting out the next pieces uh, of whatever I was sewing, pinning them, and then coming back to Austin to sew until the next visit. And I also had assistance from Mako, who is a sewing teacher, with some aspects of, of sewing in between going back and forth to Houston. Um, and this whole thing took over a year of pretty steady, continuous uh, sewing. The pandemic was a great time to be doing this, by the way, because I couldn't go anywhere anyhow. Um, so once the sewing is done, this intense finale, which I just finished, um, takes place at some point after that, depending on everyone's calendars. Um, it can be three weeks or as short as a week. Um, in my case, it was a little more than three weeks, <laughs> um, but it includes certain daily ceremonies and activities, um, that go on for a couple of weeks, uh, in my case and they culminate in these two more complex ceremonies on the final two evenings. So I started in Houston. I made a trip to Houston uh, the weekend of September 11th and 12th. And on the 12th, I performed a, a brief opening ceremony that starts the countdown of three weeks um, and must be done face to face. Um, and this face to face is an important aspect of this, which I will return to in a moment. Um, and then I came to Austin uh, and did the first week of daily ceremonies. And I did this in part because I live and practice here. And I wanted to include you, those of you who could come under our pandemic conditions. And I wanted to um, be with you. So um, those ceremonies, those daily ceremonies are not private. Uh, many of you assisted me uh, by carrying things for me and ringing bells for me as I chanted. Um, twice a day, I made a circuit of all the altars in, at the Austin Zen Center. I had a great deal of assistance also from Kokio um, in uh, creating this circuit and from Mako, who shared with me what she did when she was undergoing this process. So thank you, teachers. Um, and um, I also chanted and bowed and offer incense with every name of all the Buddhas and ancestors, both male and female. From the seven Buddhas before Shakyamuni Buddha, all the way to the founder of our temple here, uh, Zenke Hartman. And once I went to Houston, I, I ended with Tenshin Anderson, the founder of the temple in Houston, and my teacher's name, Konjin Galen Godwin. Um, and that was deeply moving to me, the way we created this list uh, in Houston is to not do all the men and then all the women, which is our kind of our usual practice in most temples where women ancestors are chanted, but to do all of the male Indian ancestors and then all the female Indian ancestors, then all the male Chinese ancestors, all the female Chinese ancestors, and then the Japanese male and female ancestors. So it was one big group. It took a while <laughs> to chant all these names. But I appreciate, I came to appreciate the interweaving of the male and female lineages very much. Um, it, it was really, it created a different feeling in me to, to not consider them separate um, for that purpose. Um, and I went to Houston and did the same thing. 
And in Houston, I added a daily personal service. So I had four ceremonies a day. Um, and then in Houston, I was given documents of heritage or documents of lineage to copy by hand with a brush and ink in the traditional way um, on silk. <laughs> and these documents are usually not shown to others. Um, that part is private. Um, but um, I spent many hours a day doing this, and my husband, priest Bunkai, who was with me in Houston, helped me immeasurably during this time. He made ink for me in red and black while I did the copying, so I didn't have to stop and continually make more ink. Um, and Bunkai was also my attendant, my only attendant, for all the daily ceremonies um, nearly the three weeks we were in Houston. Um, and I, I want to thank him from the bottom of my heart uh, in front of all of you. <laughs> um, I also had support and assistance from many people in Houston, right? We, we don't practice alone. So I, was, I feel very greatly supported um, in this process. So these uh, two ceremonies on two successive days um, or nights, actually. Traditionally, the second ceremony is at midnight. We didn't actually do it that late. There is some flexibility in all this. Um, in the first one, this is the empowerment to offer the precepts. And that was the fourth time that I received them again and then can pass them on. I mean, we actually, to give is to receive, to receive is to give. Um, so, Dharma-transmitted priests are entrusted with sustaining and passing on the precepts. That's a, a, a serious, very um, uh, weighty vow. The second ceremony, the next day, is about the disciple taking their place in the family lineage, even if you've already taken it. In my case, I now have three Kechimyaku. <laughs> I have three of these documents. Um, this is where a disciple receives the new brown robe which, at least in our tradition, we sew ourselves. This is something that I really value greatly, the uh, sewing one's own um, robes, of course, with the help of others. But I think that's a very meaningful um, practice. You also get the kotsu, this thing. <laughs> the stick, that sometimes called the teaching stick, which is um, a symbol of teaching authority among other things. You get a lot of things. <laughs> and then, you know, more important than the brown robe and the implements that go with this status of teacher, one becomes, in essence, an ancestor, takes one's place in the, among the ancestors after your own teacher while alive. And I want to say something here about teachers. You can read or hear a lot about the importance of long study and the development of intimacy with a teacher, right, with, with a particular teacher. Something that happens through practicing with them, learning their way in words and not in words, and finding a resonance or an affinity um, that can be kind of difficult to explain outside of a Zen context. It's, there's no way to neatly characterize a relationship between a teacher and a student. Um, I have tried to explain it to long-term friends and family, and it's really hard to do. Um, sometimes a student really does have only one teacher throughout their practice life. Um, from the first day they walk into a zendo until they receive Dharma transmission, 
you know, maybe decades later. But often this is not so. You know, people move, ruptures can happen. And as a student develops, it may be appropriate to work with a different teacher or teachers. And in fact, part of our training is to work with different teachers. We go off, we do practice periods, and we hear lots of Dharma and experience the teaching of many people. What seems important is that there is enough familiarity, honesty, and discernment on both sides of the relationship for the trust of entrustment, the confidence to be appropriate uh, in Dharma transmission. And there is this teaching of being face to face, right? To really meeting the, the complete person as Shakyamuni was, Shakyamuni Buddha, with his disciple and the first Dharma heir, Mahakashapa. And teachers and students since are kind of expected to share this face-to-face -face familiarity and intimacy. There has to be a meeting of and recognition between the body minds that we are. This is reflected especially in one of those Dogen essays that I studied and you can read called Menju, which means face-to-face -face entrustment. You know, the story is, you, many of you know this, Buddha held up a flower in, in this assembly and Mahakashapa smiled, right? There were, and this was said to be the first transmission, the first Dharma transmission, the first successor of the Buddha was recognized in this way by the Buddha. No words, just understanding, right? The smile the face. And this is a story that may not be historically true, right? But it expresses something fundamental. In this wordless encounter of Buddha and disciple, transmission really had already happened. This story is a kind of enactment of that understanding of face-to-face -face recognition of what had already taken place. An entrustment and empowerment to carry on the teaching in an authentic way for the sake of all beings as part of this. So I have been very fortunate to receive the teaching and training of several teachers. Um, a few in particular have been critical in my life. Uh, my first root teacher in North Carolina, uh, Josho Pat Phelan, made a deep impression on me that continues. It will always be there wherever I go, whoever I'm with. Um, but through causes and conditions that are too vast and complex to recount uh, or to account for, I moved from Chapel Hill and in deciding to come here, I turned to Galen Roshi for uh, guidance. And I'd met her at Tassajara many years ago and sat Sashin with her uh, in Houston and also with Rev Anderson, uh, who's also Kokyo's teacher, as you know, um, in Houston and elsewhere. And Galen and I had an affinity which had been nurtured through the years, although I have not spent a long time of, in residence and practice um, with her the way I had with my root teacher. And I also deeply resonate with the teachings of Tenshin Roshi, um, with whom I have practiced periodically. So Galen accepted me as her disciple going forward and offered me transmission. Um, so I am, I feel extremely fortunate to have been ordained in Suzuki Roshi's lineage in the first place and to have been deeply formed in the way of uh, two of Suzuki Roshi's main disciples, 
Sojin Mel Weitzman, who is uh, our Austin Zen Center founders teacher, and also in that of Tension Reb Anderson, both of them uh, having been abbot of San Francisco Zen Center. I, um, I, I can't express my gratitude. It's often said at hinge points in practice, like Jukai or priest ordination um, or being a Shuso, that you have completed or accomplished something, right? It seems like this is a step, a stage, and you've got something. Um, and there are things that, that happen. And I've also heard it said that now, right now, the real practice begins. And this is also true of Dharma transmission. I think it's kind of like a, you know, uh, almost like a bait and switch. Okay, now, <laughs> right now. But I certainly felt the deep impact of so much preparation, uh, much of which is through the body. Right? Sitting, stitching, brushing ink, bowing and bowing and bowing and bowing some more. <laughs> chanting, offering, walking around. You know, not that many words are involved, actually. It's really an embodiment that, that you um, take on. Staying with this daily enactment that, that culminated a couple of weeks ago, really to the point of exhaustion, is transformative. It is a kind of apex but I do feel I am a beginner, you know, learning to wear a new Okesa, learning how to carry these things that I've been given to do it with some grace and, and some ease, but also um, just sitting here with you, giving this talk, being with you over the last couple of weeks, you know, I feel different. I feel the responsibility in a new way to carry out the teaching as best I can and to express, you know, this bigger self as authentically as I can and the way of our school as it was offered to me, but as me, not as a copy or a mimic of anyone else. So it's an, kind of an interesting balance between taking on the ways of one's teacher or teachers and this school and finding one's own expression. And that's the real beginning, I think, for me. So in the last minutes here, I wanted to uh, tell you about the title of my talk. <laughs> um, it's a reference to one of these teaching stories, these koans, um, and I'm going to quote it as it was retold by Zenke Blanche Hartman, the founder of the Austin Zen Center. Um, and this is how she tells it. She says, the 42nd ancestor, Chinese ancestor we're talking about, who in Japan, Japanese is known as Ryozan Enkan, one of the one of the ancestors whose names we chant. Um, this Ryozan Enkan was the attendant to the forty-first ancestor, whose name, as we pronounce it um, in uh, uh, Japanese, is Doan Kanchi. Right? You may have chanted these names recently at the last all-day sitting. So the attendant, as the attendant. Um, Ryozan Enkan carried the teacher's robe for him. Right, that's very symbolic, <laughs> carrying the robe. And there was a moment in which the teacher needed to put on his robe. So Ryozan Enkan handed the robe to him. Here it is. 
And the teacher, Doan Kanchi, said to this disciple, what is the business under the patched robe? That was the question. You know, we might say, what is this form? Why put on this form? What are you actually? That's my editorial comment. The student, Ryozan Enkan, couldn't answer. He had nothing to say. So the teacher said to him to wear this robe and not understand the great matter is the greatest suffering. <laughs> so you ask me. So the student asked the teacher, what is the business under the patched robe? I, you know, this robe. The teacher said, intimacy, intimacy. And this was the moment when the 42nd ancestor woke up and he bowed to his teacher in great gratitude in tears. And the teacher asked, what have you understood? Can you express it? And the student said, what is the matter under this robe? Intimacy. <laughs> but he understood it for himself now. And his teacher said, intimacy and even greater intimacy. So I, and as in so many of these stories, this awakening opportunity that just came out of an everyday encounter depended on encounter, on meeting, teacher and student meeting. It comes up in meeting another person, but it's really not about finding an answer from or getting an answer from that other person, right? You have to find it yourself, even if you express it in exactly the same words, right? You've understood for yourself. And this is happening all the time, potentially between all of us in every encounter. But the opportunity in meeting a teacher uh, is especially profound, or it can be. You know, these ancient stories, these koans about our Chinese ancestors are transmitted through our Japanese tradition. And so, you know, at some point I asked myself about this expression intimacy, you know, like, what, what, what is this intimacy, you know? And I wanted to understand how the Japanese teachers understood it. And the Japanese word for intimacy is mitsu, um, mitsu, which is also the subject of a, yet another Dogen fascicle. It has this meaning of secret or hidden or undisclosed and also what we translate as intimacy. And in our um, tradition, we also have a compound word, menmitsu. Once in a while, I hear Mako bring this up. Um, menmitsu is a word that Suzuki Roshi defined as to be very careful in doing things, very considerate in doing things. And Dogen also used this phrase, menmitsu, menmitsu no kafu the careful consideration of everything or intimacy with everything that is literally the family style. So this is our practice, this intimacy with everything, careful consideration of everything. So the addition of the character men to Mitsu to give us men Mitsu is actually kind of interesting because this character men 
is also the word for cotton cloth. Like the close weave of cotton has this quality of mitsu, intimacy, right? You can't have the cloth without the threads. You can't have, if you, if you don't have threads, you don't have a cloth. They're so, we, we can separate them, but we can't, right? That's what this word means. A teacher in our lineage, Jiryu Mark Richmond Byler said, Menmitsu, as an enactment of the immutable truth of the total connectedness of all things, isn't an inner state. It's about taking care of things. It's not about me. It's about the fork, the dish, the person I'm looking at. This is how Menmitsu is as careful consideration is not just mindfulness or you know kind of really being there for another person or thing it expresses the way things really are it's an expression of reality and this is what is encapsulated in that expression menmitsu no kafu very considerate is the family way the family way of practice this is Dogen's expression, and it's the same intimacy that we chant in the merging of difference and equality, right? That first line, which is about the lineage, the transmission of the lineage, is the mind of the great sage of India is intimately communicated from west to east, right? Seamlessly from India to China to Japan to us. And this is what we vow to continue. Tension, Roshi says, we live in a mind that is generated in such a way that it appears to be knowing something other than itself. But we are also given the gift of a mind that knows itself, a mind that is perceiving itself. If we can understand this, he says, we understand suchness or reality, non-duality. We understand the way we really are. This is the business under the patched robe, right? Our individual form expressing the universal form. The business under the patched robe of a practitioner under your Rakasu and my Okasha, Okasa, or the t-shirt <laughs> or the sweatshirt or the button down is this intimacy. And this continues to be true even if my robe happens to be brown. I haven't finished anything. I'm just starting again, continuously starting again. I am going to do the same bows. I am going to chant the same chants. I have already been giving Dharma talks for a while. So how this manifests is the story of the rest of this transmitted priest's life. What a transmission doesn't mean that such a person is quote unquote enlightened it means that a teacher decides to entrust the continuation of the teaching and the way of our lineage to a new person. And in my understanding, nothing is really transmitted or transferred. It's more like a confirmation of a shared understanding and mutual resonance. Um, and concluding, I want to uh, leave you with some words from Dogen Zenji that I was deeply moved by in um, one of the fascicles that I was studying. It really actually moved me to tears. Um, he was speaking about uh, the Linji lineage of Zen, 
and their unwritten instruction on Dharma transmission. But he quoted it even though it wasn't written down. Um, and this is what he says about it. The heritage is not given by the first teacher or the last teacher, but by the right teacher. This is the principle of direct heritage. So although we speak of a kind of family tree proceeding through time, when referring to the lineage of Buddha's ancestors, you know, in the direction from past to present, um, it's maybe not entirely just like that. Dogen says of ancestors, they are not lined up, <laughs> nor are they gathered together, but they just inherit from one another. I would say they appear when transmission takes place, when practice takes place, that's when the ancestors are alive, they're with us. And practice and realization are not separate, not two things. Dogen said that in finally encountering his true teacher, you know, the right teacher in China, and after not much time with him, not, you know, a lifetime of practice with this one teacher, that he, Dogen, quote, got out of the old pit that he had been in up to that time with his Chinese master's help. And I feel a deep resonance with this and deep gratitude to Galen Roshi and all of my teachers, which include all of you. Dogen says, we are one Buddha and one ancestor, all sharing the prediction of Buddhahood, and we could not be more fortunate. Do not take it for granted. Thank you very much. You may have questions or comments. I'll do my best. I see Maureen. Ah, Maureen, sorry. Yes. Hey, Toro. Hi, Maureen. Um, thank you for showing us a little underneath all those robes. Um, I, I have a first, um, it's so wonderful to have you here, to have you, um, I don't know, you know, accomplishment sounds anti-Zen, but it seems like a big accomplishment. So um, when you were talking about intimacy, Choro, you know, when I think intimacy, I think, um, oh, a partner, or I think, oh, a really close friend, or, I mean, I think I imbue it with kinds of things that I don't know that's included in what you mean by intimacy, because it sounds like was kind of sliding off into the nature of reality, which is, you know, we're not separate. So I just wonder, could you just talk a little bit more about that? Thank you for that question. I have a whole talk about intimacy and I actually cribbed some of what I said at the end from that talk, because I have been, um, it's been a kind of koan for me for a long time for some of the reasons you just mentioned, you know, looking for it in something or someone else especially, you know, I, I always had this sense that, and, and it's part of our culture, right? We talk about intimate friends and intimacy is kind of code, like for sexual intimacy. There's all this baggage that, like with so many words in English that this carries. I came across uh, something that Tenshin Roshi apparently said somewhere to someone who <laughs> was conveyed to me that um, intimacy is not uh, personal. So this kind of intimacy is not what usually we carry around, you know, the idea that we carry around like, you know, my, I'm intimate with this friend that I've had for decades, or I'm intimate with my partner or my, my husband or wife, you know, my spouse. Um, 
it's intimacy with yourself and intimacy with reality. Yeah. And that could come through a partner. It could come through, you know, an encounter with another being, any being. That's why this teacher student Sangha thing is kind of outside our usual, right? Our usual webs of relationships that we imbue with this idea of intimacy. So that that's just a quick, you know, a quick thing about it. Yeah, it's a big question for a lot of us. Thank you for bringing it up. David, I see you, your hand, and then I see Melanie. So um, you, you said speechless kind of jokingly, but I will, I will, I mean that sincerely. <laughs> it does make me um, speechless, which you all have all heard me talk a lot. So that's a rarity for me. I'm, you know, Mako mentioned maybe two weeks ago, three weeks ago about her, uh, her choice to, to go down this, this path roughly 17 years ago. And, you know, and I, I'm, when I hear people talk about this choice to, to go down this path, um, I'm overcome with gratitude and, and to hear you share your experience with us. Yeah. Utterly speechless. It's fascinating. It's beautiful. <laughs> um, and, um, and I'm, I'm just grateful to you all. And, and I, I so much enjoy the non-duality of hierarchy and non-hierarchical things here. It's just, just awesome. I love that. Um, you're a priest. I'm a lay person. I'm reading Dogen. You're reading Dogen. And, um, you know, when it just, I just love that. Um, I find so much in that. And, um, yeah. And, um, you're, we're talking a lot about intimacy and, um, there are these moments in our Dharma talks or during Zazen or whether I'm sitting physically or virtually with, with the Sangha, where um, I do feel like deep connection to something that I read that was written 1500 years ago. <laughs> and um, that, that to me is intimacy of um, really just spanning time. And, and so it gets to this place of um, there's no past, there's no future. And that is, uh, when you talk about intimacy and um, I definitely have been experiencing it that way. And I, 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 that's one of how, one of the ways that I'm kind of interpreting what you're saying and, and what you experience. I, I thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, definitely removes, yeah, I don't know. It's, it has definitely been mysterious. <laughs> like, what does all that mean? And, um, but, but not in a bad way, not in a way like it was somehow kept or 
kept away or something or hidden, but just like mystery to me, at least like, what does all of that mean? So um, yeah, just utterly fascinating. Love it. Really, <laughs> truly beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing with us. And thank you for doing this and benefiting us with this. Thank you, Dave. I hope it's a benefit. I mean, you know, um, I, uh, many others have done it. And, you know, so it's just a, it's an experience that I also was privileged to have, to be, have this, it's, it's not, yeah, it's, a, it, there's something about it that's a big deal. And then it's also just what we do, you know, and, uh, you know, we're going to be hearing, those of us in the practice period, we'll be hearing some way-seeking talks, way-seeking mind talks, and all of us come in through some door, you know. Sometimes it just opens, sometimes we knock, <laughs> you know, hard. Um, we can't figure it out how to get in, but um, it's there. And it's like, you know, not really a barrier. We just have to face ourselves and go through. So thank you for being here and for your practice, everybody. Um, yeah, we all just keep going and uh, enlighten each other bit by bit or all at once. Melanie, hello. Hello. Um, I really appreciate the way that you speak. Um, it feels... Uh, well, it feels intimate in, in, in that it feels vulnerable and practical and open. I, I really appreciate that. And uh, something that you said about, I think you were quoting Dogen about not the, not the first teacher, it comes from the, not the first teacher, and not the last teacher. And now I can't remember what the middle part was. The right teacher. <laughs> the right teacher. Yes. So I wondered if you could talk about affinity when you said you felt affinity. What, what is that? Because I don't think it's necessarily the perfect teacher, like a teacher without faults or, you know, someone who knows a lot necessarily or any of that. And so I wondered if you could talk about that. Thank you. Good question. I'll try. Um, you know, the uh, there are these, you know, kind of um, complex causes and conditions. We always fall back on that causes and conditions. Who know? You know, who can say? <laughs> but it's really also true. You know, my when I entered the Chapel Hill Zen Center, I had never met a flesh and blood Zen teacher. I had been reading lots of books. And people do come through in the way they write and what they write about, what they say. But I had never seen a person wearing, you know, uh, an okesa, and um, I'd never been in a zendo. And I was, you know, in the middle of my life when I finally decided it was time to sit down and learn something. <laughs> that was my mode. And the person who appeared, you know, and offered incense at the altar and then sat in her teacher's seat was a person really who turned out to be utterly unlike me in terms of personality. Like really different <laughs> and really different in terms also of like many of the people that I had grown up with, been friends with, or been colleagues with, right? Different background, 
different embodiment. And then of course, they're the things that we wear that, that also, you know, uh, if you're wearing a long sleeved, you know, robe, you got to move in certain ways or you're going to catch your, you know, your sleeve on the door. I mean, it just kind of makes you move in certain ways. That's part of the training actually. Anyway, um, I, but I was fascinated and I thought this person's really unlike me and I want to know more. Like, where does she get this stillness? Where does she get this quiet voice that she speaks with that still holds everyone's attention? Who is she? How did she get this way? Was she always this way? You know, just all these questions came up and I decided to hang out and just kind of observe um, as well as do what I knew how to do already, which was read and study and, you know, go to Dharma talks and read books and also try to uh, learn how to do things. I was deeply drawn to the forms of bowing and offering incense, probably because I grew up Catholic, you know, it seemed kind of familiar. Anyway, that for me was, there was this sense that I wanted to understand better how this person was this person. And yes, imitate, you know, you kind of learn by doing, right? But eventually I realized that, you know, I had to do this, we all have to do this, we express ourselves, this individual expresses reality, right? We are our, who we are doesn't mean we don't refine ourselves. But also in meeting other teachers, I understood, I could put my own teacher's expression in a kind of context and not a comparison exactly, but see what was shared and how she was herself really in more clarity, with more clarity. Um, and, and Galen was a, I won't say the right teacher as in the only teacher, right? You find the right one <laughs> and that's the one, like it sounds really exclusive, but for who I am right now, uh, who I've become, Galen has been a good teacher for me now. And there was this meeting between us, you know, that resulted in this particular thing. So something like that. And I think you all have affinities with different people, right? With the, some people in the Sangha kind of resonate more with you. Different teachers kind of like go straight to your heart when you hear them or see them. And that's the way it is, right? It's just the way it is. We're human beings. We should be open to learning and hearing and really seeing everyone. But there are going to be people who are just because of our karma and these causes and conditions are going to be the ones that really reach us, you know? And teach us and sometimes the teaching is not easy it's not you know the other thing about um, intimacy that I learned the hard way by expecting intimacy always to be warm and fuzzy <laughs> and close and lovely is that it isn't but it's still intimate you know conflict is also intimate um, discomfort can be very intimate it's you learn right yeah so I think that's all I want to say. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for asking. Liliana has her hand raised. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Hi. Oh, you. Hi, Liliana. <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate you saying about the embodiment of the practice and this final period. And I was able to bow with you just one day. And I was amazed that how 
sore I was the next day, <laughs> my thighs and, <laughs> and uh, you know, my whole leg and I walk a lot. <laughs> so I was like, wow. And that was just one day. <laughs> so yeah, that's one of the things I love about our Zen practice that it, it can be, you know, very mental, intellectual thinking, like this wonderful Dharma talks that we are so lucky to receive. But then in the end, it's just wordless. And it's just through the ordinary actions and sometimes intensified actions and sometimes just being aware of our actions that it's really at the core and that, that is accessible to everyone and that's slowing down. And so, you know, I really appreciate the both aspects of that and how they complement each other and the way you describe it, even leading up to this very um, important change and, and transition and threshold, uh, it's still in essence the same. So thank you. Thank you. Yes, thank you for, for coming that day and doing those bows. I was impressed that you did them with me. Um, thank you for that. And uh, yeah, I, I didn't actually count them. I have a rough idea of how many bows I did every day and um, I didn't want to add it up over the more than three weeks because I, <laughs> I didn't want to attach to it and I didn't really want to know either. I have to say that I'm my knees are finally feeling more like my knees <laughs> after doing all of that. Um, yeah, uh, but it also is like this, I don't know how to say it. It's just, you know, when you just, it's like, I think maybe running a race a little bit, you, you go past exhaustion and preference and wanting it to be over or wanting, I wanted it to continue, even though no, I knew I could not continue. <laughs> I didn't want it to end. You know, you're in this space that's, you know, it's time to go home, <laughs> time to go back <laughs> and ready to go back. And at the same time, like leaving that ceremonial container um, was, uh, yeah, I felt it. And um, so it was great to plunge in. It was great to plunge into practice period right away and all the activity and ceremonies that we're doing. And it was also like, I am so tired, <laughs> to be honest. I'm so tired. So gradually, you know, I'm kind of regain my energy. Yeah. But it's we dedicate ourselves, you know, dedicate is to act out of a vow. Right? We, we're devoted and we, we act out of the, the, the voto is the vow. So this was part of that for me. Yeah. Thank you all again. Nice to see you, Bruce. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Choro.